0: The first reading is taken from Micah chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, can be found on page 699. <clears throat> Micah chapter 4, starting at verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, "'Stronghold of daughter Zion, "'the former dominion will be restored to you. "'Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem. "'Why do you now cry aloud? "'Have you no king? "'Has your ruler perished that pain seizes you "'like that of a woman in labor? "'Writhe in agony, daughter Zion, "'like a woman in labor. "'For now you must leave the city "'to camp in the open field. "'You will go to Babylon. "'There you will be rescued.' There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. But now many nations are gathered against you. They say, let her be defiled, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze. And you will break to pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. The second reading is taken from Revelation, chapter 21, verses 22 to 27. That can be found on page 940. Reading from verse 22. I do not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning again. Thanks so much for having me today. Real pleasure to be here. Try and move this up a little bit. Oh, that, was, that, was, that didn't go too well, did it? <laughs> Seamless. Uh, was, that, was that you, Andy? I bet it was. <laughs> he's he's tricked me there. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a better joke. Yeah, good. Uh, very good. Um, please have your Bibles open to uh, Micah, chapter 4 particularly. We are going to look across the whole book today, actually, in Micah. And uh, we're thinking this morning about why it matters that we love the world. Why it matters that we love the world. Let me pray for us, and then we'll come to this part of God's Word together. Father, we thank you that you are the Lord of all the earth. We pray today that we would be um, helped in our, in our thinking, to look beyond our own backyard, to see the ends of the earth. We pray you would please move our hearts to have a a love and compassion for peoples and places that perhaps are not in our thinking at the moment. And we pray, please, that you would do a work in us that only you can do. We pray for faith, please, to believe the things you would teach us today. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When we lived in Indonesia, one of our favourite places to visit, normally on a Saturday on our day off, was a, a place called Toko Setya Budi. It was the local import shop. And there's uh, a picture of Indonesia in the background there. Uh, there in Indonesia, we could go and find all the, the treats and the, the nice food that have been imported all the way to West Java. Sometimes an exciting experience, find a nice favorite chocolate bar. Other times a deflating experience, find a jar of marmite, it would come all the way 6,000 miles, but it was like £15.99. And weighing up, is it worth it? Not normally. Um, we moved back then to the UK and uh, we were living in Nottingham quite near the university and uh, there was a shop called Fresh Asia just around the corner from our house and there were all the international students from Malaysia and Thailand and, and China were getting their local treat. We, we love and we long for what's familiar don't we? Uh, we crave things that make us feel close to home whether that's culturally or geographically. And I guess in, in many ways that's just normal behaviour, isn't it? We, we like things that are familiar. But perhaps it also reveals something which is a bit more unsettling. It's um, not just that we, we like the familiar things, it's that we're only concerned about familiar things, whether it's a particular kind of people or a certain kind of place I guess we see those attitudes at their worst, don't we, when we look at the uh, top ten news items for the day on the BBC website, and we see that as a nation, perhaps we're more bothered about the latest contestants on reality TV than we are about the kids torn from their homes in a place like Afghanistan. You know, the book of Micah really challenges that way of thinking, doesn't it? In chapter 1, verse 1, take a look, we see a prophecy written. Uh, about the fate of a particular people, God's people, the Israelites in two particular places there, Samaria and Jerusalem, the two capitals. But notice verse 2, who is called to listen in and to look in to what God is saying to the Israelites. Verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Here is a prophecy with global reach and with global implications. God himself is described in chapter 4 verse 13, we had it a moment ago, as the Lord of all the earth. In chapter 7 verse 18 we're told that across the earth there is no one like him. John Stott speaking about similar issues once famously said this, we need to become global Christians with a global vision, because we have a global God. Global Christians with a global vision, because we have a global God. And so this morning, we're going to consider two things about our global God that we learn here in the book of Micah. And as we do that, hopefully, we'll think about the implications for us as we serve this global God today. I think you can flick on two slides uh, to the next section for us, please. So here's the first big point for us this morning. We see in the book of Micah that the scope of God's judgment is global. The scope of his judgment is global. The anthropologists, as I guess most of you know, are people who study different peoples and their, their cultures. It's a really fascinating field, isn't it? So much to discover. Um, at the popular level, we have things like National Geographic. They have their magazines and their Websites, we see their striking photos. At times, they're, they're, they're revealing, aren't they, of all sorts of different things we're not familiar with. Sometimes beautiful, sometimes fascinating, other times, maybe disturbing, intriguing. One of the big themes of cultural anthropology seems to be that as we examine cultures and as we look at all the differences, we see every different culture as somehow being neutral not our place, the anthropologists would say, to draw any moral conclusions about the things we observe. So of course when it comes to the whole idea of, of Christian mission, and the idea of sharing a message which says, salvation can be found in Jesus Christ alone, whoever you are and wherever you're from, well of course the anthropologists are throwing their hands in the air and saying, "Well, hang on a minute, who do you think you are to take your message to those people. Just leave those people in peace, will you? Just leave them in peace. Well, the book of Micah tells us very clearly those people often are not at peace. Without the Lord Jesus, they're not at peace with each other. And without the Lord Jesus, they're not at peace with God. And in the book of Micah, we see a job description for the prophets and it's a pretty unusual one. We find it in chapter 3 and verse 8. Micah there is to declare to people their sin and their transgression. He's to speak of the consequences of living as if God wasn't there. You see, for all their good intentions, the anthropologists have got it wrong, haven't they? The Lord of all the earth shows us there is no neutral culture and there are no people beyond his judgment. Of course, ourselves very much including. Three reasons why we see God will judge the nations here in the book of Micah. First, we see the nations are judged for opposing God's people. The first chapter of Micah speaks about the judgment that would come on his people, God's people, if they didn't listen to him. And if they didn't turn from their sin. Chapter 1, verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of Rubble. You read on, you see the northern kingdom would be kicked out of the promised land by the Assyrians, that foreign power. Those in the southern kingdom would be sent out into exile by the Babylonians, another foreign power taking over. You can check that out later in the book, chapter 5, verse 5, chapter 4, verse 10. But what's interesting here is God speaks a, a message of coming judgment on his own people. He also has things to say about the surrounding nations about the Babylonians and about the Assyrians. Take a look, for example, at chapter 4 and verse 11. But many nations are gathered against you. That is against God's people. They say, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gloat over Zion. I mean, picture the scene for a moment. Here we have the Babylonians and the Assyrians, these great superpowers. They've had their victory over the Israelites. Imagine their pride Here's another country crossed off the list on our quest for world domination. They might be thinking to themselves, no one can touch us. But the prophet goes on there in 4 and verse 12. But they, that is these foreign powers, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them like she's to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will give you horns of iron. I will give you hooves of bronze, and you will break into pieces many nations. You will devote their ill-gotten gains to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? The Lord of all the earth, the book of Micah shows us, is sovereign over all the earth. Yes, he used the Babylonians and the Assyrians, these surrounding nations, to punish his people... But their wickedness wasn't to be excused. They opposed God's people, God saw it, and he would judge them for it. Across the world today, so many people from so many nations stand in opposition to God's people. Speaking a couple of months ago to a UFM worker in Central Asia, he was talking about the refugee crisis. People are fleeing from Afghanistan, a neighboring nation to where they serve, fleeing the Taliban and coming to their country. He was saying that for our brothers and sisters, Christian people within the refugee community, if they're identified as being Christian believers, they will be persecuted in ways up to and including death, even within the refugee community. Imagine that for a moment. People en masse together, you would think, bound together at their, their, their despair at fleeing the Taliban. Yet even within that, that, that community, facing so much suffering, our Christian brothers and sisters facing persecution. And so those guys there in Central Asia, they're working with their national colleagues to try and provide safe houses for our Christian friends moving to new countries. So many stand in opposition to God's people. What does God make of that? You know, in the extreme examples as terrorists behead believers for refusing to deny the faith or as Western secular governments legislate against Christian freedoms, or as a Malaysian Muslim family persecutes its own child for converting to Christ, or as the local authorities in the city we used to live in, in Indonesia, closed down 15 churches in one year alone, God isn't sitting in heaven thinking, well aren't these cultures just so fascinating? He's not, as it were, leaping through National Geographic saying, what interesting, morally neutral people. No, God sees. And the book of Micah says he witnesses against all nations who oppose his people and he promises there, verse 13, to break into pieces many nations. The nations are judged for opposing God's people. second thing we see here in terms of the judgment of God being global in scope is the nations are judged for their idolatry. At the end of chapter 5 here in Micah, he describes the kinds of idolatry that the nations were involved in. Idolatry also that had been incorporated into the life of his people. He speaks about witchcraft and carved images and sacred stones and Asherah poles. I guess we've got a funny relationship with that kind of thing in the UK these days, don't we? We often think we've risen above all of that kind of thing. We look to other parts of the world. People bowing down to literal statues and we look up. I guess we're all patronizing, thinking we're, we're beyond that somehow. And yet people go on reading their stars online. And the idolatry doesn't stop there, does it? Matthew 6.21, where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And for many people, of course, around here, it's in the weekend sport, it's in the home improvement. When God sees the nations worshipping other gods, whether that's here in the UK or many, many miles away, somewhere across an ocean. When he sees people following after idols, what does he think? What does he make of it? Well, again, without being flippant, he's, he's not looking at the, the stack of paradise Buddha garden statues down at b saying, Whoa, they're a sniff, aren't they? 1999. They look kind of cool and ethnic in the back garden. He's not queuing up with all the other tourists at the temple of the Emerald, Emerald Buddha in Bangkok to get a good photo of the gold-plated pagoda. Now this is what God thinks about idolatry among the nations. Chapter 5 and verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land and tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft. And you no longer cast spells. I will destroy your idols and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot from among you your Asherah poles. When I demolish your cities, I will take vengeance in anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. What does God make of idolatry among the nations? He says here four times he will destroy. Two times he will uproot, he will destroy. Tear down, he will demolish. So the nations are judged for their opposition to God's people. The nations are judged for their idolatry. Third, the nations are judged for their lack of justice and mercy. It wasn't just the Israelites in the day of Micah who were ripping off people less fortunate than themselves. Chapter 4, verse 13, speaking particularly about the Babylonians, it talks of their ill-gotten gain. So clear in the book of Micah that God is bothered about injustice. And I know some of you studied this book a couple of years ago as a church. But even if you're not familiar with this book, you'll probably recognize chapter 6 and verse 8. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. With your God, Notice again the context of this saying in this book is the whole world, a concern for the nations. The Lord is a global God. So again, God's not just sitting back reading the celebrity gossip, as it were, when refugees are being exploited by people, traffickers, and being pushed out into oceans on unseaworthy ships. God is bothered about justice and mercy. The scope of God's judgment is global. The book of Micah says, and so just as Babylon and Assyria face God's wrath in the day of Micah, so the nations today, our own included, will be judged for their opposition to God's people, for their idolatry, for their lack of justice and mercy. And therefore, friends, whether we're in Balam or Burundi or London or Laos, we cannot leave the nations in peace. Because without the Lord Jesus, they're not at peace they're frequently not at peace with each other and they're not, they're not at peace with God. You know, sometimes when we see idolatry in our world or when we view injustice and a lack of mercy between peoples, what can our response be? Well, sometimes we just uh, try and take the moral high ground as if somehow we're not involved, doesn't apply to us, or somehow we're better. We can join the chorus of those disapproving of the latest spiritual disaster or moral failure. A bit earlier on, a few moments ago, we mentioned something of Micah's job description there in chapter 3, verse 8. He was to declare people's transgression and sin. Yet as he did that, as he lived that out in his prophetic ministry, notice in what sense he did that. Chapter 1 and verse 8 because of this, because of the coming judgment of the Lord, because of this I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. Here's a prophet who weeps over those who face God's judgment. Reminds us of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? Luke 19 verses 41 and 42. As Jesus looks out over Jerusalem... As he considers the lostness of the people there and the fate that will befall them if they wouldn't repent. Jesus weeps. Friends, I wonder when was the last time we wept over the fate of the nations who were lost without the Lord Jesus. When was the last time you wept for Balaam or us for Marlborough or the places that perhaps we've never even heard of around the world? Pastor master called Stuart Olliot asks this challenging question to us as believers. He says, how do we react when we hear of the latest moral or spiritual disasters in our country or our world? Do we head to the judge's bench or do we head to the mourner's bench? I guess if you're anything like me, you'll often flip between the two. In our time in Indonesia, we'd often drive or walk past mosques. Indonesia has the most Muslims of any country in the world, nearly 200 million Muslim people. And so of course there are mosques on every street corner and pretty much on every street in between. We would walk by or drive by and outside those mosques at certain times of day would be the sandals and the shoes of all the people who'd gone in to pray. Hundreds of them. Sometimes thousands of them. Sometimes images like that would, would strike us really hard. People longing, longing for salvation, yet living without the Lord Jesus. And at those times, I'd find myself on the mourner's bench. Yet at other times, in the face of the injustices we saw, or the rawness of the poverty, my overriding emotion wasn't compassion for the lost, it was perhaps a frustration with the culture, or anger about the injustice. And so there I was in those moments, on the judge's bench, Friends, the book of Micah shows us we've got to be those who mourn when we see the scope of God's judgment is global. Because in the face of that judgment, what do the nations have to hope in if they're just relying on themselves? So we God got to move our hearts. Would He help us like Jesus to look at the lost, as sheep without a shepherd, and to have compassion on them? Matthew 9. 36, would he give us eyes, maybe afresh to see the lostness of people who are living without the Lord Jesus? And then would he help us to get off the mourner's bench so we can warn people that God's judgment is coming? But yet there really is hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because just as it is a reality that the scope of God's judgment is global in nature, so also the scope of God's salvation is global. Praise God. Let's Think about this thing in the time we have left. The scope of God's salvation being global. It's always really impressive, isn't it, when you see a, an area of a town that once was really run down and then suddenly it's transformed and it looks really lovely. Our old house in Indonesia was near a, an open rubbish dump. Every few days a guy would come round with a barrow, he'd pick up the rubbish outside everyone's house and he'd, he'd lob it into this growing mound at the side of the road. It was a bit of a mess, it smelled bad, looked bad, there were rats in there, cats, flies, who knows what else was in there. Suddenly one day it was all fenced off and over the next few days this, this awful stenching rubbish dump was turned into this small but beautiful little urban garden, a great transformation. You know, at the end of Micah 3, we have a desperate, desperate scene. Have a look at chapter 3 and verse 12. Jerusalem has been ploughed like a field. It is a heap of rubble. The weeds are taking over. God's judgment has come, just as he promised it would be. But then you come into chapter 4, and you see the scene doesn't just change. It is totally transformed. We move from the period of, of the exile and God's judgment and into the last days. Chapter 4, verse 1. Probably speaking here about eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And this transformation is not normal in any sense. It is totally miraculous. Take a look. Chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. Do you see the contrast? End of chapter 3, Zion ploughed like a field, yet now in chapter 4, it's established. Back in chapter 3, Jerusalem, a heap of rubble. Now in chapter 4, it's the highest of the mountains. We read on here in chapter 4, and we see who is there. We see who it is, is who is no longer separated from God because of their sin, but now who has been welcomed in to God's family. End of chapter, sorry, chapter 4, end of verse 1. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Do we see what's happening here? The peoples stream, the nations, they come. The very people who had opposed God's people the idolaters, those lacking in justice and mercy. The nations who deserve God's judgment. Some of those people are now here streaming to God. Why do they come? We read on into chapter 4, verse 2. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. These people from the nations, they come to be taught by God himself. Which is absolutely incredible. All the way through the book of Micah, God calls His people to listen to Him. Perhaps you could say there are three sections in the book of Micah. Each begins with the same call to listen to God. It's there in chapter 1 verse 2, chapter 3 verse 1, chapter 6 verse 1. Will you listen to me? Will you listen to me? Will you listen to me? And the people just couldn't care less. It's like they have their hands over their ears. They go on ignoring Him. But now this transformation has occurred and the nations are streaming to God to be taught by Him. What's the result? Chapter 4, verse 3. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train for war anymore everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and no one will make them afraid. For the Lord Almighty has spoken. We see what's happening here is that nations come to worship the Lord. They're now acting justly. They're loving mercy. They're walking humbly with their God. And as their relationship with God is restored so their relationship with each other becomes what it ought to be. Disputes are settled. Wars cease. People live in peace. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a picture which reminds us of, of the New Jerusalem described for us in Revelation 21. We had in our second reading there. In describing the New Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, this is what we read. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Notice as the nations stream here to the heavenly Jerusalem, they're not streaming, are they, to a new building, or a physical temple. No, they're streaming to Jesus Christ himself. The Saviour of the world. What will it be like to be there on that day? Revelation 7 puts it like this. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Why a picture and why a future. This is where it's all heading, friends, isn't it? For those who belong to the Lord Jesus, an uncountable multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language saved by Jesus, praising Jesus, friend, do you long to be there? Maybe for some of you here this morning, you're still not sure if you're going to be there. Jesus welcomes anyone, wherever you're from, whatever you've done, if you'll simply turn from your sin and put your trust in Him, this is the future that can be yours also. Here is a beautiful reality that is still to come. And so as we wait for that incredible day, what does God require of us today? Well, you know, God still calls us to listen to Him. As he did in the day of Micah. In the New Testament, God speaks from the cloud at the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Father says this about Jesus. This is my son. Listen to him. So what does Jesus say about our role until that great day? We've just been thinking about. Well, Matthew 9, we touched on this a moment ago. Moved by the need of the crowd what did Jesus say to his disciples? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest field. Friends, will we go on making this our prayer as churches? Praise God for those you sent over the years here from Christ Church Ballon, for the churches that have been established. Go on praying this prayer. It's an uncomfortable prayer to pray because as God answers this prayer, we say goodbye to dear friends, dear co-workers, people we've invested hours and months and years in, people we've shared our lives with, people we've gone through joys and sufferings with. It's painful to send. We have the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Will We go on getting on our knees and praying these prayers. What else does God say about our role? until that great day. Luke 24. We're to bear witness to all that we have seen and heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to make disciples among the nations. Here our task today is God's people, not scattered in judgment like those in exile, yet scattered on mission. To go to the ends of the earth with the saving news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Longing that others would have the experience we have a transformation of life that only Jesus can bring about. Something which brings us from death to life, from judgment to salvation. Here is a mission we're sent on that is about all peoples and all nations. And never just about what's in our own backyard. What was it that John Stott said? He said we need to become global Christians with a global vision. Because we have a global but as we draw things to a close now, let's finish with one final question, which is this. Friends, how are we doing with our global vision? We've got to acknowledge, haven't we, that the demographics of the UK continue to develop and change. And we find there are wonderful, wonderful cross-cultural mission opportunities for the gospel right here on our doorstep particularly in London, as we look at the UK context. I know a couple of weeks ago you had a friend from London City Mission talking about these kinds of opportunities. Oh Amen. Praise God. Let's take these. Between 2000 and 2020, a net 5 million people came to the UK. We've got people in UFM working in a project called 100fold. They use their IT skills to facilitate mission opportunities. They mapped out in a graphic. I can show you afterwards if you'd like to see it. They mapped out on a graphic, immigration into Europe. Where are people coming from? Well, the whole world, but including places like North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia. Places where it's so hard to access the Gospel. We praise God for cross-cultural opportunities for the Gospel close to home. Let's go on taking them as you are. But friends, it is a fallacy to say the world has come to us, if by that we mean the cross-cultural missionary task can somehow conveniently be sorted out just in our own backyard. Because of population growth around the world, there are now 1.5 billion more people not in the UK than there were 20 years ago. Do we hear that? 5 million net have come in. But in, in, in relative terms to the rest of the world, there are 1.5 billion more people not in the UK than there were 20 years ago. So how will they hear? Let's be mindful of them. Let's be educated about them. Let's understand the situation for the gospel a long way away as well as close to home. And you know, despite the wonderful, thrilling growth of the church in many parts of the majority world, we're talking Asia, Africa, Latin America, the reality remains that 86% of the world's Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists have no Christian friend. And so, how can they hear? Many live in places where there is no church yet. Those places still exist. And despite the weakness we feel here in the UK church, where nationally, Maybe as few as 4% of the population believe in Christ, as Ross shared earlier on, perhaps even less here in your area. We look across the English Channel to the great nations of Europe and we see whole regions in places like Portugal without an evangelical church. You know, friends, if we're honest, we know more about holidays in Portugal than we do about the gospel situation in Portugal. And that has to change, doesn't it, friends? It has to change. The need for churches here in the UK and around the world to recover our global vision, vision is vital and it's pressing. And the need for churches to send, it's still there. The need for some to go, it's still there. And friends, what a message we have to share as we go on in this mission. Let me close simply by reading the, the last few verses of the book of Micah. And as you listen to these verses, chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, let's have in mind that the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few. And let's be crying out from our hearts that he would send out workers for the harvest fields, that his churches would be full of compassion, ready to send, willing to go, taking this unique, wonderful, life-changing message of salvation even to the very ends of the earth. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham. As he pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Amen.